0: Welcome to this evening's lecture at the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. Thank you for coming in from a glorious autumn afternoon to, uh, to join us. Um, my name is Michael Sony. I'm the director of the Fairbank Center. As was evident uh, to many of you at this week's memorial service for a former director of the Fairbank Center, Rod McFarker, the strength of our center uh, owes a huge debt to past leadership. I'm very aware as director that I follow in the footsteps of giants of China studies who have contributed so much to the field and to the study of China at Harvard. It's therefore a particular pleasure to welcome back another former director, uh, Vilt Idema, Professor Emeritus of Chinese Literature at Harvard. Director of the Fairbank Center, 2002 to 2005. Uh, Another challenging time for China Studies at Harvard, but for different reasons, uh, to present today's lecture. Professor Idema came uh, to Harvard in 2000 from Leiden University. His research uh, has spanned the gamut from traditional Chinese vernacular fiction, early traditional drama, popular ballads and tales, women's literature, of the pre-modern and modern period, and uh, also uh, women's script. Um, his he taught at Harvard from 2000 until his retirement some years ago. Uh, it was a, it was a was a phased retirement, and we were very happy to have him still teaching and advising students and spending time with us until he uh, returned back to Holland uh, uh, a few years ago. Today's lecture also marks the opening of a new uh, collaborative exhibition between the Zha Library, the Zha Shuguan, the Harvard Yanjing Library, and the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies. The exhibition is entitled Treasures of the Zha Library, uh, and it presents part of the collection of the largest privately owned library in the PRC that is open to the public, alongside some wonderful treasures from our own Harvard Yanjing collection. Uh, To quote from uh, Professor Tian Xiaofei's introduction to the exhibition, the Zha library is primarily built upon the private collection of the man who launched one of the world's largest online platforms for the circulation of old used books. The library was founded in 2015 with another associate of the center, Gao Xiaosong, as its director. It was Gao who gave the library its name, Zha, a word that means miscellaneous multifarious, mixed, or simply put, eclectic. I would like to take this opportunity, because this marks both Professor Idema's lecture and the opening of the treasures of the Zasuguan exhibition, to thank the eclectic group of individuals who made the exhibition possible, uh, beginning with Gao Xiaosong, Professor Idema, and Professor Tian. Uh, for their um, envisioning and imagination of the exhibition. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, my colleagues uh, uh, Ma He and Sharon Yang of Harvard Yanjing Library for their work putting the exhibition together, uh, the staff of the Fairbank Center, uh, uh, as well as other staff from Harvard Yanjing who pitched in at the last minute to mount the exhibition, uh, and the curators of the exhibition, uh, James Evan, James Evans, uh, Xiao Ge, who joins us from the Zashuguan, uh in Beijing, and Annie Wong. Uh, we invite you to join us after the lecture today for a reception to celebrate the opening of the exhibition uh, upstairs in the exhibition space on the main floor of Sieges. I'd like to also invite you Uh, to another event associated with the exhibition, a panel discussion on archival and private collecting, which will also have an eclectic mix of speakers, and that will be held, I believe, in this room on the afternoon of October 2nd. But for now, please join me in welcoming Professor Wilt Edema as he kicks off our evening with a second look at the precious scroll of the red gauze.
1: Well, this paper was originally intended to be part of that October 2nd symposium. And so its topic is perhaps a little bit more specific than I otherwise might have uh, chosen. But uh, I hope it will eventually broaden out sufficiently to uh, have some more uh, general meaning. The, uh, I was very enthusiastic about this event, the exhibition, uh, the symposium, because the Tsashuguan is not only a very large library, but one of its strengths, amongst many others, is that it collects many works of popular literature. To all those texts that for centuries have been rejected often by librarians and scholars as And so the problem is that some people think these materials are interesting and tell us very much about Chinese culture through the ages until the modern time. Don't forget that when, in the 20th century, larger numbers of Chinese learned to read than ever before, what they were reading was not Lu Xun, not Tun. But what they were reading were the products of the lithographic publishers in Shanghai, who had no problem whatsoever to find a huge audience all over China for their works of popular literature, traditional titles, but also many works that were newly composed to meet the hunger of Chinese audiences for readable, literature. Now, my talk will be about the uh, story, the precious scroll of the red gauze. And I will come later in my talk to the topic. One of the reasons I chose this is because this Precious scroll, a genre of popular literature in particular, was at one moment hailed as the oldest example of the genre, dating from the 13th, if not the 12th century. There's now a different discussion about it. But first, what is the story about? If we would summarize the story, it would go very well into the uh, Grimm's fairy tales. There is this couple. They have no children. They pray to the gods. And the god, the third lad, kindly arranges it that a golden boy who had committed some kind of misdemeanor will be born to the couple as their son. Now, smart parents know that then you have to repay your vows. This couple forgets. And when the boy is three years old, the gods decide, the third lad uh, in particular, decides to take back the soul of this little boy. The parents are disconsolate and make new vows. And the mother, Lady Young, in particular, promises to embroider a wonderful red gauze curtain for the god. It takes us three years to complete this, and when she presents it to the god, the soul of the boy is returned. But when the third lad shows his wonderful gauze curtain to his brothers, he has two elder and two younger brothers. They also want such a wonderful, nice, ghost curtain. So they take away the soul of the mother (laughs) to the underworld and set her to work for the next 12 years to embroider. Now, mothers who die before that time will always tell their husbands, not to remarry, because stepmothers have the reputation of abusing the children of the first mother. The father, easily misled by the words of the go-between Kang, marries a certain woman, Yo, who brings her own boy into the marriage. The father is always absent collecting debts. And she uses his absences to abuse the boy. But every time, he is saved in time from uh, death by the intervention of the god, the third lad. Then the father has collected so much money that he buys a military commission. <coughs> People who collect money should not take to war because he is easily defeated by uh, bandits and put in prison. And so his second wife decides that now it's time to take, take care of the little boy once and for all. She buys a very sharp knife. Uh, one of these choppers, which were the pride of Tienman. And when she goes at night to the bed where the two boys are sleeping, she thinks it's her stepson who is lying in front, but the god has changed their places, so she kills her own son. What to do now? She accuses the boy of murdering his stepbrother. The magistrate does not believe her story until he changes his mind because of the substantial bribe she is willing to pay. And so the uh, little boy is condemned to death, saved in time by the intervention of the god, goes to the capital meets with his father in prison, saves his father from starvation by his excellent begging, and then after 11 years, the princess wants to select a groom. The begging boy happens to be her. Her embroidered balls she is throwing into the crowd lands into his begging bowl. So, He is her destined groom, and she marries him. She notices he is sad. She asks him why. Well, my father is in prison. Oh, she says, that's no problem. I talk to Daddy. He will arrange matters. And so Daddy arranges matters, frees the father, and gives him 3,000 troops to go home and take revenge on his enemies. The boy goes home. Arrests the his stepmother, the mid the go between the uh doctor who at one moment sold poison, the magistrate, and just when he is about to kill them all, knock knock his mother, who has fulfilled her duties. From inside her coffin, which is, stored, which is stored behind the house, knocks on the coffin and says, Get me out of here. <laughs> and so they do. And uh, everybody is very happy, of course. And the stepmother, sa- the real mother says, Don't punish them. These creatures will get their just dessert when they die. They will never be reborn in human shape. And they lived happily ever after, because they all were transported up to heaven. Now, you will have noticed that this is a mishmash of all kind of fairy motifs uh, which uh, you can uh, see. Uh, I will not uh, detail that. One of the things which intrigued me is the role of third lad the god, and his four brothers. Once the story was moved to southern China, this penta of brothers was identified with the Wutong or Wuxian or Wuxian gods of wealth that you have to serve very faithfully, because if you do not serve them very faithfully, they will visit on you all the bad things you visit on others. Uh, so who is third lad? I don't know. If we assume that the text dates from before the 16th century, it's very difficult to find examples of the third lad. After the 16th century, the index to uh, local gazetteers will give you no end of temples dedicated to third Thanlang, but t- dedicated to a host of different uh, people. Now, in all, if it would be this uh, pentad, uh, these Wutong, the gods would be of equal rank. But this is clearly a different set of gods because Sanlang is the god who really acts, and his brothers don't do nothing except being jealous of his nice red curtain. And so uh, I've tried to, uh, there is one early temple to the uh, third lad from southern uh, Shanxi, uh, but all the information there was uh, so uh, who this god may be will have to be found out. There are local legends, but that's only about three brothers. The only case of a Wulang Miao I could find is not dedicated to five brothers. Uh, uh, gods, but is dedicated to Yang Wulang, the fifth son of uh, Yang Ye, the great general of the Yang family. So it's still not clear who this third god is, but he has a very central role in the story up to the uh, resurrection of his uh, mother. He's saving the little boy time and again. This story, this Bao was extremely popular all over China. The uh, recent uh, catalog of Zhe Xilun of Precious Scrolls uh, comes up with over 30 different versions, something like 20 different manuscripts and over 10 different lithographic editions from the early part of the 20th century. Uh, A student at Fultan University just finished a MA thesis on the modern adaptations of this uh, legend and came up with over 50 different versions. And I'm quite sure that once the catalog of the Ta Quan for popular literature will be online, that there will be 10 more, uh, at least. So it's a very popular uh, story. It's also a very old story, a very old precious scroll, because it is already mentioned in chapter 82 of the Jinping Mei. And we also have an edition which dates at least from the 16th century. That edition has as full title, Yang Yangshi, Show, the precious scroll of little Hua Shen, huh, as preached by the Buddha about how Lady Yang, as a ghost, embroidered red gauze. Uh, that is only preserved in a single copy, which is in the Shanxi Provincial uh, Museum. And uh, it is preserved, which is very rare for a precious scroll because usually they are preserved in a sutra binding. So as a harmonica, you can fold them out. This is preserved in a butterfly binding, which is the opposite from what we usually see with traditional books where the pages are folded with uh, the outside uh, uh, out. So the blank sides are folded together. In butterfly binding, the printed sides are folded together. And then they are glued together at the spine. And that means that in that edition, which has been uh, reproduced by Mashi Shah in one of his collections of precious scrolls, The text is difficult to read, because the inner lines are often uh, do not come out in the reproduction. Fortunately, there is a modern edition by the contemporary scholar Shang Li Xin, and I've used that for my translation. The translation is done. Now the problem is to find a publisher. (laughs) It's not the only one uh, text in that uh, collection. Now, in a uh, Ming precious scroll, as they were published in uh, this period, the form is very specific. The text is divided into chapters. Each chapter starts with a title, a song, followed by a short prose passage which is ended by a couplet this is followed by a passage in ballad verse, either in seven syllables to a line or ten syllables to a line, that is followed by what is the Chinese scholars call a tan, a hymn because it's a passage in four syllable lines and the chapter ends with a four line gata or uh, which makes this baojuan quite different from the other forms of wen wenshuai from the Ming dynasty. And by now, we have a much clearer idea of the many different forms of suochang wenshuai that are available. Okay, this art text has all these elements. And now, if it would be a fairy tale, of course, the uh, bad people would all be killed off in the most cruel manner. Here, that does not happen. Because part of it is because the mother is revived and turns out to be a bodhisattva. The other element which sets this apart from the regular Fairy tales or other contemporary huapan uh, or Sorchang uh, Wonzwed text is the fact that this text introduces the figure of the unborn old mother. Some people find the translation unborn old mother for Bush and Laumu ungainly and so make her venerable mother. But of course, she is is the mother at the beginning of creation who was not born from anyone else. And so there are three passages in which uh, this text describes the unborn old mother. Uh, I will not read all of them, but uh, once Lady Young embroiders her curtain... The whole creation is included in her embroidery. She embroidered the Buddha's grandmother at a gathering at Spirit Mount. Ever since this unborn old mother had seen her children disperse, she had been unable to see them again. And at all times, she hoped that the men and women throughout the world would come home, and she feared that when the three disasters would arrive, they would lose their spiritual light, and for 81 kalpas forever would be unable to meet with their mother again. You realize we are now living near the end of the 80th kalpa, with the political leaders we have these days. One would think that may be true, and in the 81st kalpa, there will be the great gathering of the dragon flower, uh, supervised uh, by Maitreya, the Buddha of the next kalpa. So it's extremely important now to convert and fully commit yourself to trust in the unborn mother, because then you will be transported to the next kalpa, and you will be able to join the great meeting of the flower tree uh, with uh, my trail. Uh, now if you read this text more carefully, it would appear that all of these passages are they have no connection with the preceding text, with the following text, and that they are later insertions. Uh, and that the role of the third uh, eternal mother is very limited and that the most prominent deity is actually the third lad and so my I've been wondering, could it be that this is a text story which originally was composed as a hagiography to praise the qualities of San Lang, but which at a later date was transformed into a story of a young man longing for his mother, which can stand emblematic for are longing for the uh, uh, unborn old mother, and that somebody noticed this and adapted the text accordingly. And the intriguing thing is that this text includes Information in its paratextual elements, which seem to hint at a complex textual history. And uh, so the first thing is that Masi Shah, uh, who discovered this text in the collection of the Provincial Museum, Uh, drew attention to these passages and claimed that they indicated that the text dated from at least the 13th century, possibly from the 12th century. And so the first of these passages is, newly cut in the year Kung Yin of the Zhe Yuan reign, which corresponds to 1290. The monk Chiren of the Yuanjie hermitage outside the Zhubou gate of Qinling initiated the carving as a gift to the multitude. Gift to the multitude is an insecure translation. Uh, Most scholars have read this as one statement that this text dates from 1290, claims to date from 1290. The expression newly cut, of course, implicates that the preserved edition was not a first printing, and such a first earlier edition would seem to be implied by a few lines that follow the table of contents revised and compiled at imperial behest for distribution throughout the world on the longest day of the year, in the first year of the Qing reign, a Renqian year, and that is 12. 12, uh, It's a reign period of the Qin dynasty. Uh, That moves the composition, or at least the distribution of the text, forward to 12. Twelve. Uh, now, if the 16th century edition could be identified, the text of that edition could be identified with a text of 1212 and contain these explicit descriptions of the role of the eternal mother, the unborn old mother. That would have major implications for our understanding of the chronology of the origin and spread of the new religions, the new sects of the Ming Dynasty. There would not be sects of the Ming Dynasty. There would be new religions of the and southern Song. Uh, various scholars, therefore, immediately reacted to the publication of Maxi Shah and said, This cannot be. These dates must be falsifications, they must have been put in there to. Uh, uh, crea- enhance the status of this text, and look at this silly statement about the monk Run who lives at the outside the Tupa Gate in Nanjing. We all know that the Tupa Gate uh, dates from the Ming Dynasty, and that it was Mr. Xunzhou who donated the money with some uh, stimulus from uh, Zhu Yanjiang. And so uh, it's very clear. This was nonsense. Now, the first thing is, of course, that if you look back at that sentence, uh, newly cut in the Kung Yin year, may well be a statement of that is the text which this monk used when he published his own edition. I don't think it has necessarily to refer to a single moment of printing. It may refer to two moments, 1290. This is the edition which I used for this new Uh, Shanshu, this new printing. The other thing is that... Historians of architecture say the Tupoumen is not called Tupoumen because it was the money was donated by Mr. Shun Shou, who was this mountain of money. It is called Tupoumen because it was fate facing Pao Sha, which is now called, uh, what is it? Uh, 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 <laughs> I've, the name is there. It's uh, no, it's called Yu Hua Shan. It has a different name. Uh, it's it's there in the uh, glossary. And so, if that is true, and as the Chu is exactly in the same position as the Song Dynasty and Yuan Dynasty Gate Southern Gate of Nanjing, the gate may well have had that name. In colloquial usage much earlier. But I'm quite happy to assume uh, that it is a two-different date. And actually, our edition may not be the edition put out by the monk Tiran, but a later edition, because elsewhere we find that uh, the gentleman in charge of books, Wu Yang Chuan, uh, informs us that he further ordered fine craftsmen to create two picture sheets and other craftsmen, presumably, to carve fine plates. And yes, this particular pao Duen comes with illustrations. Now, it's not unusual for a pao Duen to come with illustration, but it is, that is usually a large picture of the Buddha preaching to the multitudes on Spirit Mountain, like you often find at the beginning of Buddhist sutras. It's rare to find illustrations of story. In this case, we have one picture of a young, beautiful woman, list, leaning on a balustrade, looking into the distance. And another sheet which illustrates four different scenes from the uh, so from the story. This, together with the butterfly binding, suggests to me, at least, that we have here probably a, yet another reprinting as a commercial undertaking by a. Man who calls himself elsewhere in the text Xuling Wuyang Chuan. Which could either mean Wuyang Chuan from Shuling. Uh, Lucille Jia, whom I consulted about this, said more likely it's a Huizhou publisher resident in Nanjing. Uh, so uh, but so it is quite possible, therefore, that we have uh, basically, that the text has gone through four stages, one edition from 1212, one new edition from 1290, an undated edition by the monk Ji Ren, who perhaps maybe identified with the monk who in the text himself says, I have given myself much trouble to compose this story. And then the uh, publisher Buyang Chuan, who ordered illustrations to make the publication more attractive. So uh, if we uh, we know from plays, novels, other texts that vernacular texts often are heavily revised with each reprinting. If our text shows all the features of a formal features of a 16th century precious scroll, uh, then probably the monk Jiren could well have been the person who adapted the text in that way. Now... Personally, I'm quite happy. I don't think the text as we have it, the edition, is definitely 16th century. But I'm quite willing to accept that there may have been earlier instantations of this story as a text. And I'm a little bit more convinced of that possibility because the Jin government in northern China, may also have published a Jurchid translation of the story of Woman Huang. The story of Woman Huang is another very early precious scroll, also mentioned in the Tin Ping Mei. And the list of books that had been translated in the Jurchen script and that is listed in the dynastic history, includes a Huang Shenhu Shu, the Book of Woman Huang. And Huang Yu is the usual way in which that character is introduced. Now from A modern perspective, I now come to a more general uh, part of my paper. From a modern perspective, it may seem that the government of the Jin dynasty would be interested in this type of literature. But I think the precious scroll provides us with an interesting case where a genre of literature that initially appeals not only to the lower levels of society, but also to the highest levels of society, is by government action is turned into folk literature. Uh, let alone the case of the teen dynasty. Uh, some of you will be better acquainted with the earliest editions of the... Mulian Paojian. We have an edition from a manuscript from 1372, made for the court of the northern Yuan dynasty. In Russia, they have a copy of 1440, produced uh, at the behest of an imperial concubine. And we have a later manuscript. These different texts, as Rostislav Bereskin has shown, also show the same formal changes in the format of the text as the text is uh, revised again and again. We know from other precious scrolls in the Ming dynasty that eunuchs. Concubines, officials were involved in uh, sponsoring such materials. Uh, from the Qing Dynasty, as late as the Middle Kangxi period, we have from Kansu uh, the precious scroll uh, on the immortal maiden equal to heaven, which was published with. Spo- huh? but a publication was sponsored by the military governor of Kansu, who had had an an official in waiting for appointment revise the text for publication. And in the 18th century, our earliest known version of the precious scroll of Shangshan, which tells the story of Miao Shan, was printed in Korea at royal command. So at least until the early Qing dynasty, the highest in the country were happy to sponsor this kind of publications. When does it change? In the middle of the Qing dynasty, I would say from the Chenlung reign, when there are a number of so-called sectarian rebellions, and the government becomes increasingly suspicious of any kind of organization. That government suspicion, of course, strengthens a negative attitude on the part of some of the Confucian elite. And uh, the charge of superstition in the 20th century has been enough to turn this material into a almost secret popular uh, folk literature until after the 1980s, when this genre could uh, revive. Remarkably, on the one hand, in Western Kansu, because the region is so poor, they have no culture. Therefore, this is the only culture, is the explanation. But the other region is the Wu dialect area. Shanghai, Suzhou, and that whole area where that argument does not hold. Huh? The, uh, it's often said that Bao especially appealed to women. That uh, may appeal to some regions. It also is borne out by the descriptions in uh, Jinping May. But that is definitely not the only story. This issue of gender is something I found find very uh, interesting. Until quite recently, performers almost always were Men. It's only quite recently that women have to have started to perform precious scrolls in a religious uh, setting. Uh, my own personal uh, suspicion is that when it comes to the so-called sectarian precious scrolls, uh, they were an exclusively male affair, basically. And from Kansu, we have ample evidence that traditionally women were not allowed to join the audience. I suppose that it applied especially to women from uh, the teenage age when until uh, the after the menopause when uh, fertile women are considered potentially polluting. But uh, in Kansu, definitely, performances were often all male affairs. And uh, no women were allowed to join them. So that is an issue we would probably have to look at more uh, closely. The other thing I would raise, and that is an issue which I think we probably should think more about in general when it comes uh, to the history of popular literature, we have very few historical information. If you look at the which lists for every province tens of different genres of storytelling, ballad singing, uh, one, two things strike me. One is how shallow the known history is of each of these genres. Usually, reliable historical evidence starts at the end of the 19th century, for genres that otherwise are known to have been quite popular. Why from the 19th century? Then you get advertisements in newspapers for performances. Uh, and that applies also for many genres of regional opera. There are many provinces of China where they are playing opera all the time, on every occasion, all through the year, and where basically we know nothing until the end of the 19th century. Uh, that also applies to these genres. There may be some anecdotes about how, one or two centuries ago, such and such famous person liked this genre. But those are clearly myths intended to enhance the status of the genre. I would suggest that the little information we have tends to be highly atypical and may not be unrealistic, for instance, the descriptions in the Jinping Mei of Bao and performances as such are very important. But we should keep in mind that the Jinping Mei is not an encyclopedia of daily life in China. If it's an encyclopedia, it's an encyclopedia of daily life in one and one hopes very atypical family in traditional China. Uh, And so as historians and people like me who are interested in the history of this of course have a tendency to draw lines from the one little tidbit of information to the other little tidbit of information to reconstruct a history. but I'm afraid that here we are dealing with genres where the real history is has to be more daringly reconstructed than by just relying on this uh, this kind of information. So I won't bore you longer. There is a uh, reception waiting for us. (laughs) (laughs) But I am happy to answer questions, uh, react to comments, Yes, Peter? So I was very. Uh, this is an interesting account, particularly bringing it back to the Jin Dynasty. Yeah. Um, and I recall there being Zhu Gongqiao from the Jin yeah. Dynasty as well. But I had not heard. And I know that there's translation into Jurchen, small script at least, of various Chinese texts. Yes. But I had never heard of a popular literature being translated into Jurchen. Well, I mean, it's... Is this the, the one example, or do we have more examples? Uh, well, uh, vernacular literature was printed in northern China. We have the, for a printed example, we have the Gong Jiao. but as so often, that is a happenstance archaeological find of a partially preserved text. But it proves beyond a doubt that, yes, in Jin Dynasty China, that is to say, northern China of the 12th and 13th century, works, extensive works of popular literature were printed in Chinese. As for the translation into uh, the Juchin script and being printed, uh, all I can say is the list which mostly consists of Chinese classics, Chinese historical works, includes a title Huang Nu Shu, The Book of Woman Huang. If somebody has a better suggestion for an identification of the contents of that text, please tell me, because then I know that I have to uh, correct my thinking, but Huang Xenu is typically the name in which this character is. uh... The story of Huang Xenu is also already included in a 13th century collection of miracle tales about the Nirvana Sutra. Woman Huang knows the Nirvana Sutra by heart. She's a very pious lady. Her husband is a butcher. And uh, she says to her husband, you should stop this line of business. Uh, Open a tea shop, then you don't have to kill. uh." And uh, her husband says, ha ha, no way. Uh, First of all, uh, I've never seen somebody who came back from hell and told me that butchers turned into pigs, secondly we are making good money, and thirdly you as a woman are more sinful than I as a man can ever be eh, because of your polluting uh, bleeding. And uh, I will only let you read a religious life. He's a nice guy actually. I will only. (laughs) He also does not remarry. I will only let you live a religious life if you can recite the whole Nirvana Sutra, and she does. So she lives apart, and uh, but her recitation is so perfect that King Yama summons her to the underworld and has her re- recite the text. and uh, then uh, allows her to return to us. But unfortunately, her corpse has decomposed. What to do? She is reborn. She is allowed to select her own family. Not a foreign family, because then you have to learn to speak a foreign language. That's too hard for me, she says in one of the versions. Huh? She is reborn in a rich family. She uh, is a very bright boy teaches, uh, passes the examination, is appointed as magistrate in the district, and summons her former husband, who is scared shitless because he is summoned by the court. And then she says, just imagine the scene. Here you are, a butcher in Chinese society, not the most esteemed uh, craft, called in to meet the local magistrate, who says, by the way, I'm your former wife. And if you don't believe, I'll show you my calf because it's written down here. (laughs) Anyway, it's. uh, Thank you. uh, And so that summary. is also, reads very much like the summary of a Bao Zhen. a very well-developed story, because, again, we have, in this case, it's woman Huang, who, as a little child, is the victim of an evil stepmother. Uh, An evil stepmother cannot stand this conspicuous piety of her stepchild, and so the relation is very bad. But the problem is... That particular collection, supposedly dating from the Song dynasty, probably dating from the Song dynasty, collects this particular story at the very end in its only known 16th century edition. So it might have been added at a later stage. I would say it is quite possible that this story of Woman Huang also already circulated in a quite developed version. And for a other example, uh, some of you know I am interested in talking animals. And so I had a look at the uh, precious scroll on Prince Golden Calf which tells the story, it's a very complicated story, but it tells the story of a former life of the Buddha, where the Buddha is born as the son to the third imperial concubine. The other imperial concubines are jealous. They switch the baby for a cat. Here is the origin of the famous Limao mao huan type story, which most people know from Judge Bao. But it's older. It's already uh, from the sixth century in the Sutra text. Uh, and the final way they fi- discover of killing this boy is feeding him to a vicious cow. The cow eats the boy the boy is grows into a beautiful calf which uh, the cow produces uh, in one version in the regular way from her backside but it was a virginal calf uh, in the other cases not from her backside but she spits it out and then the story is very interesting but there <laughs> It's interesting that we have in a text which is only preserved in Korea, but was probably compiled in China, a version which is written in the format of what most of us know as a shihua. And we know there is the Song dynasty, da Tang, suan chu the story, whispers, of how Sven thang of the Great Tongue went to India to fetch sutras. And in that story is divided into short chapters, which all end with a gatha spoken by one of the characters in the story. Now, this text is not divided into chapters, but it is likewise. It is, consists of many scenes which end with characters pronouncing, reciting, composing, intoning having gathas. And the t- terminology is exactly the same as in the uh, So that text has been preserved in a edition put out in 4048 by the official printer to the Prince of E. in Loya. And is said to be based on an edition of 1342. So here again you have the suggestion that this type of stories circulated in the milieu of oral performance and were also available in a textual format in the period from, at least from, let's say, the 12th century, 13th century onwards. Uh, and there must have been far more, far more than we now find. But as it was popular material, the stuff was read to shreds, unless it was taken to Korea, where everything which is in Chinese is treasured like in Japan, where so many texts have been preserved because they're in Chinese and therefore treasured. Whereas in China, you make a distinction between <laughs> Other questions? Comments? Yes, please. I am curious about the illustrations that you mentioned. Uh, well, perhaps you would be willing to have a look at them. <laughs> Uh, it's, uh, we can, uh, we will meet afterwards, we will set up a moment and we will get uh, the uh, copy from the library. Harvard-Yenching has a copy and we can look at the style of the uh, illustration. Uh, it's very interesting because the one illustration of this beautiful lady, young lady leaning on a balustrade, looking in the distance, is very high quality, I would say. the. Illustration of the four scenes in one picture, uh, a little bit like you also find in the of the 15th century, are cruder, simpler. Huh? But uh, we'll, yes, please. Please speak up. This about the book four. The first edition. Well, uh, for a long time, this book uh, was hidden in the vaults of the Shanxi uh, Paoquan, and uh, it now has been reprinted by Masi Sha in his first volume of Chunguo uh, Chunpan Powder and Chuanji or whatever it's uh, called. Uh, so you can look at it. Among precious scrolls, such a butterfly binding to my knowledge, is extremely, extremely rare. Uh, it's either a scroll or it is the usual sutra binding. Uh, precious scrolls were presented as holy books, and they were used in uh, all kind of uh, re- religious uh, settings. And uh, in those places of China, for instance, Gansu, Uh, not in Western Kansu, but in Southern Kansu, they are still treated like holy books. And uh, they are preserved. Uh, When you read the fieldwork descriptions, uh, they will tell you that the families have a special niche in their home where these books carefully stored, carefully are kept. And people are very very reluctant to show them to outsiders because they remember a certain period in Chinese history when it was very dangerous to do so and this is said by a Chinese collector posting his materials in the early uh, 2010s and uh So perhaps there are more regions. Uh, In some parts of China, the precious scrolls have included more and more narrative materials, rather than only religious materials. But uh, I would like to stress here that from the very beginning, the Pao Zhen, the corpus of Pao Zhen, includes narrative texts. It's not as if you have the Mulian Pao Zhen, then you have sectarian Pao Zhen, then you have narrative Pao Zhen, uh, especially hagiographic texts, that is to say, sec- texts that tell the story and the miracles of a deity seemed to have been part of the corpus from a very early date. uh, With the story, for instance, of uh, uh, Xiangshan Paozhen, you may well wonder whether you should read that as just a story or primarily as a hagiography. It tells you the story of the saintly life of Quan Yin while on earth and how she became the, what is it, the 1,000-eyed, 1,000-armed Quan uh, yi, And so uh, with the, this Zhen II, the first three quarters of the text read as a hagiography of a specific local deity, probably from northern China, who can do what effective gods can do, who can deliver children. Uh, who can give children, and then can protect the child continuously, but of course takes his measures when you do not fulfill your uh, vows. Uh, So you find these texts continuously also in uh, later uh, times. I would say, Mr. Chairman that if there are no other questions and drinks are waiting, the moment may have arrived to conclude the session here and (laughs) go upstairs, where we will be rewarded for sitting here so quietly and listening to an old guy blabbering on.
0: You took most of the words out of my mouth. I wouldn't have ended quite on that last (laughs) very note. But please join me in thanking Chris Riedema for uh, an engaging offer. Thank you, boss.